Hello, and welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. John, let's play a little word association game. I'll say a word, and without thinking, you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, Ken, I'm ready. Radio. Broadcast. Talk. Radio. News. Paper. Philosopher. Hume. Philosophy. Wisdom. What's the point of this game, Ken? To illustrate that here on Philosophy Talk, we bring together two things that aren't usually associated in people's minds. Radio and philosophy. You know, that's what's so so special about public radio, Ken. I mean, where else would they allow you to have a bold radio experiment like Philosophy Talk? A bold radio experiment? That suggests that you think that philosophy and radio aren't naturally made for each other. Well, as my granddaughter would say, duh. Philosophy's dense and it's abstract. Uh, the conversations go on and on and have layers and layers of argument. Radio is immediate and visceral. That's one of the things we all love about it. And here at Philosophy Talk, what we're trying to do is achieve the best of both worlds, to marry the intellectual richness of philosophy to those unforgiving demands of radio. And we've created something new, philosophical radio. It's not your grandmother's radio. It's not your grandmother's philosophy. What we hope to do in this episode is to illustrate just what we mean by philosophical radio. We're going to dip in and out of the shows we've done in the past to illustrate what's involved in this new hybrid genre we're trying to create. Along the way, we hope to convince you that quality programming like Philosophy Talk is well worth your support. Public radio is the only place in America where an experiment in crossbreeding like Philosophy Talk could even be attempted, let alone succeed. Coming up, we'll hear excerpts from shows about the prison system, biracial identities, and philosophically rich movies. But first, we're going to listen to a sample from a program on the science of creativity. Our guest was Margaret Bowden, a world leader in cognitive science, computer science, and philosophy. What she's trying to do is develop a scientific and computational understanding of the very human capacity of creativity. And you know, one of the toughest things for a computer program mimicking human creativity to handle is the connection to emotion. So we ask her about the role of emotion in both human creativity and artificial intelligence. If a creative idea is a new sensation, can it be taught? Is there a creativity gene that some of us have and others of us lack? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest <coughs> is Margaret Bowden, author of The Creative Mind and Mind as Machine, A History of Cognitive Science. And I understand that John, our last caller, uh, wants to get back at you, Margaret. He thinks you're wrong about something. John, are you there? Yes, just to, just to clarify... Um, uh, I'm not saying that, that we can't use computers as, as one of the tools that we use to understand the mind and, and how it works, but what I'm saying is that I don't think that if we're talking about the generation of, of creative uh, works, that a computer on its own can't do that because, it, A, it doesn't have an emotional life, and, B, it's not motivated to do something creative. So there's, so there's always going to be the human uh, interface if if a computer is used as a creative tool, uh, like uh, like a like let's say like a movie camera. That's entirely possible, but a computer on itself is not going to be able to be creative. Well, let, let, let me stick my two cents in here. I mean, emotions aren't just 
things that happen for no reason. I mean, in the in the big scheme of things, they have a role, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. Yeah. One theory is that a lot of emotions uh, kind of are, are there to short-circuit the process of going through reason and deliberation and returning to some more primitive uh, reaction mechanism. Uh, the point is, whatever theory is right, uh, we might be able to design computers that have a similar architecture and Im within which emotions can play a similar role. So I'm, I'm not totally convinced, John, although I'm, I'm sure that for the current state of computer technology, you're absolutely right. What do you think, Margaret? Well, I mean, I absolutely agree with... Uh John Perry's answer to the other John. Um, certainly computers today can't do this, they can't even model this, but that's absolutely right. And as um, the caller John said, they would need to have something like motivation and emotion um, in them, at least modelled in them. They'd have to be very much more complex than anything we can do now. That's certainly true. But, um, you know, whether or not in the end, if we had these things, whether or not then we'd be prepared to say that they really have emotions and that therefore then their new ideas are really creative goes all the way back to those other questions we said before which are so deep in philosophy like the nature of meaning and intentionality and whether you can have a naturalistic psychology in the first place in other words whether science can explain mind I, that's all, that's true Margaret. that's true but and I, but i just i think we've reached some kind of a point of agreement about something. Creativity isn't some simple, single process. And this talk about the role of emotion in motivating our thinking and all that and, and reasoning, that, that, shows, that shows something about that because it's all tied up with the whole network of human cognition and conation, as, as we philosophers like to say, motivational stuff. So it's not just you can't say, ah, there's the creative joint there. There's the creativity spot. So I, oh, absolutely. I, I, yeah. I agree with that totally. But let's, yeah. let's, let's switch uh, focus just a little bit. Uh, you know, some people are more creative than others. And that raises a question. Can, is creativity the kind of thing that can be learned? I mean, or does each person just come with a fixed capacity for creativity that can't be increased or decreased? I mean, do some environments fo foster creativity more than others? What, what do you think? Well, definitely. I mean, the best way to squash creativity is to ridicule somebody when they come up with an idea that either is wrong or that you think is wrong and to undermine their confidence so they never try to do it again. And it breaks your heart. You see it happening in schools. You see it happening on the bus with people talking to their kids. Um, you know, it, it's that that's a very, very good way of squashing creativity. But if you want to foster it, then you want to try and increase the person's confidence and then increase their readiness to experiment and in three particular ways first of all if you want to in increase their capacity for coming up with new combinations you know interesting unfamiliar ones well then the more different sorts of ideas they've got in their heads the better so the more they know about different cultures the more they know about um, different forms of human behavior whatever i mean stuff their heads with lots and lots of ideas as well as giving them some sort of little exercises perhaps if we're talking about school kids in putting them together you can make it a joke um and school kids love doing that you know primary school kids love doing that sort of thing and they get the idea that you don't just have to think about the cat set on the mat right. you can think about you know much more right. Like the cat with the hat, for instance. It's striking to me, having a son in elementary school, how inimical to uh, fostering creativity so much of what goes under the name of education is. It just, it's just striking to me. I mean, it's as if we believe that free thinking, destructive, creative thinking is a danger to something. Mm. I don't know where that comes from. Absolutely. But that actually, I mean, that brings up the second way, I think, of, of um, helping people become creative. And that is hard work, practice. I mean, even Mozart 
took about 12 years of total immersion in music and composing before he composed something that was not just musically competent, which he could do at three years old, but musically innovative, musically creative. Right. And a, a psychologist did a very interesting study of about 20 very famous composers, you know, some of whom were child prodigies like he was, some of whom weren't. And in every single case, they needed about 12 years of total immersion to learn the rules of the space, if you like. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.